As we dive into summer here at Christ Church at Grove Farm, we are also taking a deep dive into the book of Colossians. As modern Christians, we face pressures and influences that will shape how we move throughout the world. The church in Colossae faced similar influences. The Apostle Paul wrote to them, and by extension us, to remind and encourage that amidst the confusion of the age, we can be made complete by focusing on Christ. If you are interested in learning more about Jesus, Christianity, or the faith community here at Christ Church at Grove Farm, I encourage you to reach out to us on our website, ccgf.org. Our pastors and staff would love to connect with you and assist you in your experience with Christ. Here is the message from this past week, grace and peace to you. Well, our passage today is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Title of the sermon is, Take Off the Old, Put on the New. Take off the old and put on the new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you. I want to praise you for who you are. And I would just ask you to fill me with your spirit and you'd speak through me to your people. And we as your people, we wouldn't be hearers, just hearers, but we would be doers of the word. And you wouldn't just stir us, but that you would change us. For Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. In the first two chapters of Colossians, the apostle Paul has been taking on false teachers. These false teachers have been saying that it isn't Jesus alone for salvation. They've been saying it's Jesus and or Jesus plus. Jesus and mysticism. Jesus and philosophy. They're thrown in the kitchen sink, if you will. And Paul says, no, it's Jesus alone. He's the only one that can complete you. Jesus is the only one that can save you, sanctify you, heal you, and bring you into glory. He is the only one. Then in chapter 3... He breaks off, if you will, from just teaching doctrine, although he continues, but he also is getting very, very practical in chapter 3. He moves from bringing just doctrine to applying it to us as believers. You see, it was common in those days that the pagan religions, that what a person believed had no impact on how they behaved. Of course, we know that's not how Christianity works. Christianity is about what we believe, but then how it impacts how we behave. If we are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the life of Christ should be seen, heard, and experienced in us, as well as in those who are around us. So Paul connects doctrine with duty. But before he gets practical, he summarizes what he's been teaching in the last two chapters as he's been taking on the false teachers. And he summarizes just five great truths about Jesus in one verse. Look at verse 1 with me. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In order for Jesus to be resurrected, he had to do what? He had to die. Then he had to be buried, and then he was resurrected. And then the verse goes on and says, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What Paul is referring to there is the fact that Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God, from the earth to heaven, and there he is glorified. Here's the five truths about Jesus that he's saying in verse 1, which, again, he's been pounding on the last two chapters going up against the the religious leaders. He was saying Jesus has died, he's buried, he's resurrected, he's ascended, and he is glorified. Those are the five doctrines of the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason he's doing that is because the false teachers were attacking his personhood and his finished work. After Paul moves from that, He begins to take those doctrines and he applies them to us. He gives us four realities of who we are in Christ. 
for, hear the word, realities of who you are now in Christ Jesus. Verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Four realities, we have died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, we've been hidden with Christ, and we will appear with Christ. Died, risen, hidden, and appeared. Let me break those down really quick. Let's take on the, the fact that we've died and we've been raised again with Christ. When someone is baptized and they go under the water of baptism, what are they doing? They're showing an outward, outward expression of an inward experience. It's symbolic, but they're saying, I died when I went under the waters of Christ. I died with Christ and to my sin and to my sinful nature. And now when they come out of the waters, they're declaring, I am resurrected with Christ. I now live in Christ. I'm alive in Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. Listen, when we died and we raised again, the moment we asked Jesus Christ to be our, our Savior, we became a new person. That's what it means to be a Christian. You become a new person. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says this. If any man or person is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. Paul said it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The moment you became a Christian, you took on the new nature of Jesus Christ. You took on the nature of Christ. That means Christ lives in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You became a new person. The third reality is this, that we are hidden in Christ. What does that mean? That means that we have passed from this kingdom, this world, into the kingdom of God. We are no longer owned by Satan. No, we are hidden in Christ. We are not part of this world. We are in it, but we're not of it. We're, we're citizens in heaven. Every one of you that is a believer, you're a citizen right now in the kingdom of God. Look what it says over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth truth is this, that we will appear with Christ. If Jesus, if Jesus is the return before we die, we would meet him in the air. But it also says, when, if, if we die before he appears, absent from the body, present with the Lord. What does that mean? That means, listen, your future is guaranteed. Heaven is your home. And when you're there, you will be glorified. These bodies will be glorified as Christ is glorified. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 3, 3 21. Who by the power of... Uh, power that enables him, that's talking about Jesus, to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Once we're in heaven, we will experience all that Jesus Christ has done for us. But Paul is teaching is that these truths are a reality now, but we have not yet experienced in full all that Jesus Christ has done for us. In other words, those of us who have received Jesus as our Savior are caught in something we call already but not yet. Say that with me. Already but not yet. Say it again. 
already, but not yet. What does that mean? It means this. The not yet is where we're living right now. The already, the already is where we will someday live, where we're headed. In other words, when we get there, we will experience in full all that Jesus Christ has done. In the meantime, we live in the not yet. We know that we live in a world, and in this world, even though we have the life of Christ living in, in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we, st we struggle with sin, and we know that's real. Every one of us in this room is struggling with something, if not a multiple of things. Why? Because we live in a sinful world, absolutely out of control. But Jesus Christ, even though he conquered sin and death, and he broke the power of sin in our lives, listen, we can still be influenced by sin. We can still be overpowered by it if we are not presenting ourselves daily, day by day to Jesus Christ. If we're not in the word and studying the word of God where our minds are transformed, if we're not praying and asking and confessing our sin daily and repenting of it, and if we're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, yeah, we can sin. The old nature can raise up its head and we can sin. That's why the Bible says this in Romans chapter 12, verse two. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's why Paul says in verse two of our passage, he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. In other words, remember who you are in Christ. You have what? Died, you've been raised again, you're hidden, and you will appear with him. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. You are a new person. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. And he's saying this, set your minds on that. The word set there in the Greek is a commandment. That's something that you must do. That's what you must do every day. Listen to me. Look right here. We're not talking about salvation. Salvation is a one-time act. That is something that God does for you. That's not what we're referring to at all. We're referring to a word called sanctification. After you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've got to walk with him to become more and more like him. It just doesn't happen. You've got to cooperate with the word of God, and you've got to be obedient to it, and then you've got to choose day by day to walk in the Spirit, and as you walk in the Spirit, you become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's where the Apostle Paul is going to go. I want you to understand that. So as he's talking to us, he's helping us, he's helping us to see something. That's something that we have to do every day. We have to set our minds on who we are in Christ. And then I began to talk to, to the Lord and, and Paul when I was teaching. I said, okay, when do you move on from our old nature to our new nature? How do we live? Look at, how do we put into practice who we really are in Christ? Finally, in verse five, he says this. He starts out by saying, put to death whatever belongs to the earthly nature. He doesn't mean carefully regulate sin. He's saying exterminate it, kill it, pick up your cross every day and follow Jesus, kill it. And then he describes a list of sins and he breaks them up into two categories, sensual and social sins. Let's look first of all at the sensual sins. He says here, um, he gives a list, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. 
Now, sexual immorality is where we get our Greek, where we, where we get that word is from the Greek. The Greek word is called pornea. It's where we get our English word pornography from. And it's a catch-all term that includes any sexual activity outside of marriage. Let me say that again. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. Let me speak to the young people for a moment. Look right here. If you put into practice what I'm about to say to you, the chances of you being pure before you get married are very strong. You ready? Dating alone in secluded places is a disastrous practice. Let me say that again. Dating alone in secluded places is a disastrous practice. When I was dating my wife, I knew that I could not be with my, my wife-to-be very much alone and come out of that relationship pure. Look, if you want to be pure, don't date alone. Date in groups. Now, I'm not saying you can never be alone because you will be, but don't make it a regular practice. And those of us who have sinned before we got married, the Bible makes it very clear. If you confess your sin and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you, then he will restore you. And if you've practiced sin like that before you got married, or even now, before you are married, if you ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you and repent of it and make a decision that you are going to be pure, God will give you a brand new start. But you gotta make a decision. You know why? Because I've been doing this ministry for 37 years, and I've had so many people come to my office and tell me this, who are married, and they cheated on their husband. They cheated on their wife. Look right here, cheated on them. And every one of them I ever talked to were never faithful before they got married to God. They were not pure. Look, how do you say no to God before you get married and then say yes to him once you're married? If you're not pure before you get married, what guarantee is, is it that you're going to be pure once you're married? Put it into practice right now. Do not, do not date alone in secluded places. It is a disastrous practice. I say that to you because I love you and I want you to be blessed. Amen? Amen. The world's never gonna tell you that, but God does because he wants to bless you in your marriage. Look right here. He says, then he goes on and gives a list, impurity and lust. That's referring to the sins, the sexual sins of the mind. Then he uses the word evil desires. That's referring to how someone's passion gets out of control. It's absolutely misdirected. Listen, God created sex. It's wonderful. It's spectacular inside of marriage. Once it's outside of marriage, it becomes misdirected, and it can even become perverted. Then he uses the word greed. It's referring to the belief that everything, including other persons, exists for one's own amusement and pleasure. You know what I learned about greed? You know how you kill greed? With generosity. If you are a materialistic person and you can't stop because greed is never satisfied, you know how you kill it? Be generous. And if you're using people, stop using them. If you want to kill it, kill it by serving people. Don't use them. Serve them. Paul moves on to, from sexual sin, sensual sin, to social sin. 
Look what he does here. He does some things here that are very interesting to me. He kind of, it's just, it's, it's amazing how Paul jumps from stuff to stuff. And he, he goes in here in verses eight and nine, he says this. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. And in verse nine, do not lie to each other. The word anger is referring to a smoldering feeling of opposition that slowly boils to the surface. In other words, this person is there, they're fine, but they're angry and they let it simmer and it boils and then all of a sudden they explode. Rage is something different. Rage is quick, sudden outburst that flares up and burns with intensity. The person's there, commas can be, and all of a sudden they just explode. I mean, how much road rage do we see on the highways today? It's amazing, isn't it? Malice is a deliberate and vicious intent to harm someone. In other words, that's a person that wants to take language, words that are absolutely hateful and say them to that other person and about that other person, to destroy them. And Paul goes, if you look at eight and nine, he goes from verse eight, and the logic is there. He's referring to first hot tempers, and then he leads to sharp tongues, and he uses the word slander. Slander is the defamation of another person's character. And that's usually done with half-truths or with lies. And they're told to destroy that person's character. And then there's filthy language. Paul is saying speech, coarse humor, obscene language, foul language, referring to also abusive language that you use to hurt someone. And then in verse 9, it says, do not lie to each other. A lie is a misrepresentation of the truth. Lying in most cases involves the intent to deceive for the purpose of personal gain. Remember, Satan is a liar. And when we as Christians lie, we cooperate with him. Paul lays out this long list of these sins. And then he finally says this in verse nine. Since you have taken off the old self, with its practices, praise God. Finally, when, because you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, verse 10, put on the new self. Take off the old and put on the new. Put on the new you. New you. And then he describes it. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. Paul is painting a beautiful picture here. Beautiful picture. He is saying, listen, go into the closet, take out those old rags, those grave clothes. They don't belong to you anymore. They don't fit. Take them, take them out to the garbage. Don't take them down to the goodwill. Put them in the garbage, set them on fire. They're gone. Do not go back to them. Because you've got a brand new wardrobe in your closet. And it's God-designed clothes just for you. And they're spectacular. They're beautiful. They're unbelievable. And you have access to that closet. And you can put these on. And he says there's seven outfits in there. Remember, seven is the perfect number. It has a beginning and an end. It's a complete number. Paul is saying, put this on. This is who you are in Christ because you are already complete. Put these on. Day after day, moment by moment. Go to the closet. Put these on. Look at these clothes. These clothes are great. First pair of clothes, compassion. Compassion has to do with entering into the suffering of another person. 
Look at that again. Compassion entering into the suffering of another person. I remember walking with a guy who said he was a Christian. We were walking through New York City together, and there was a man and a dog sitting there, and the man had a cardboard box uh, sign, and on the sign it says, hungry, please give money. And the man I was with looked at that man and the dog and said this, eat the dog, and walked right by him. That is not the compassion that God is talking about. That was absolutely ridiculous. I took that guy on, by the way. I made him go back and give money to the guy. Grabbed him right by the collar of the shirt, yanked him back there and said, talk to that man. Unbelievable. That's not the compassion that we're supposed to have. The compassion that Paul's talking about is the Good Samaritan. He says, you see the good Samaritan, what's he doing? He enters into the suffering of that person. The religious people walked right by him. But this guy, he stopped. The good Samaritan, remember the Samaritan? The Jews hated those guys. This guy understood what it meant to be hated. He understood what it meant to be despised. He didn't choose where he was born. No one chooses where they've been born. And Paul says we need to have compassion on people. Because they're created in the image of God. Amen? Now say it like you mean it. Amen. Walks over and he goes, I'm going to pick this boy up. I'm going to mend, his, mend his, his, his wounds. I'm going to take him over to the hospital, give my credit card, and I'm going to tell that guy, take care of him until I get back. That's compassion. Entering into the suffering of people. Are people suffering? As we as people of God, what do we do about that? How many people in this room are suffering? Do you even know their names or any, anything about anybody other than the little group you hang around with? There are so many people here and they need you and you need them. Compassion. Compassion. And then he uses another word. He uses a word called kindness. Kindness. Kindness is what led us to repentance, God's kindness. You know, con kindness is transformational. You know, if someone's trying to help you, but they're not kind, they can hurt you. But if they're kind, it's transformational. Many of you know that I have an aunt, her, Aunt Sally. She's pretty famous now. She's got her little face on a, on a jelly jar, you know. But she's, she's 105 years old, and I've been taking care of her for years. And she's in a nursing home right here in Pittsburgh, and she has a number of nurses. And one of the nurses is really rough with her. You know why she's rough with her? Because she's not kind. She looks, at, she looks at Aunt Sally like it's a job, not a person. And when she puts the clothes on her and gives her showers, Aunt Sally's always telling me, man, she hurts me. Then the other person walks in and she's so kind because she looks at Aunt Sally like she's a person rather than a job. And she loves her and she's kind for her. And she puts lotion on her skin. And when I walk in, I know who served because when she's in there, she's beaming because she's transformed. She had a wonderful day because that woman was kind. May we be kind. You think the world needs kindness? I think so. How about the third piece of clothes that we're supposed to be putting on? Humility. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself, but thinking rightly. Then thinking of others first rather than yourself. I call it the I am third. God first, others second, and then I'm third. Pride is the opposite of humility. Pride is saying, I gotta have it my way. Humility is saying, I'm gonna think of others before I think of myself. Fourth, gentleness. Gentleness isn't weakness. It's power 
under control. It's actually a picture word. It's a picture of a stallion that has been brought into submission by its master. All of us have seen cowboy movies where you have the cowboy breaking in a wild stallion. When that stallion finally submits, does it stop being a stallion? No, it's as strong as ever. It's just under submission to the cowboy. When you see a Christian being gentle, it's because they're under the control of the Holy Spirit. Be gentle. How about patience? Patience is the opposite of resentment and revenge. You say that again. Opposite of, of, of pa- pa- patience is the opposite of resentment and revenge. Listen, not one of us would be in this room if God wasn't patient with us. But he was patient and he forgave us. And we're in the room because he was patient. We're to be patient. And then, I'm running out of time, he goes on and he says, bearing with one another, which means to endure, to hold out in spite of persecution, threats, and complaints, don't retaliate. Last one, forgive one another. All of us who have been born again of the Spirit, who have been saved, we understand that we didn't earn it and we didn't deserve it. Salvation was given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian and you really understand that you've been forgiven. You really are confident that you've been forgiven. You also are very much aware of how much you've been forgiven from. You know how much you've been forgiven from. And when you know those two great truths about yourself, it's really easier to extend forgiveness to somebody who sins against you. You wanna extend mercy because that is the very person of Jesus Christ. Those are the clothes we're supposed to put on. Take off the old, put on the new. Take off the old, put on the new. Fix and and set your mind on those things above. Set your mind on the fact of who you are in Christ Jesus. That Jesus Christ died and you died with him. You were buried with him and you have been hidden with him and you will appear and he lives within you, you right now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying to us today, right now in this time, he's saying, live for me. But you know, I want to give you an illustration that hopefully will help you how this works out in real life. How do these clothes, putting on Jesus every day, really look in real time, in real life? Story about my wife, Tammy. When we got married, Tammy and and I were in Pittsburgh, and Tammy got a job teaching English as a second language. And she loved her job, and and the students loved her. They were from all over the world, here visiting in Pittsburgh. And Tammy was teaching them. But she was part of a group of people, teachers and an organization that despised my wife. They were absolutely cruel to my wife. I've never seen anything like it. Because she was a Christian. Tammy would say that these people would say things and do things to her. It was unbelievable. And every day before she'd go to work, she had to go into that closet and put on Jesus. And she would pray, Lord, give me the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord must be my strength. And she would go to work. And one day, finally, the the teachers decided to have a potluck dinner. So Tammy made a piece of pie. I mean, I'm not a piece of pie, a, a whole pie. Took it to work. And there they were eating. And there's one particular woman and I'm not going to tell you her real name. I'm going to call her Lucy. She was horrific. She was the worst of all to my wife. 
And they're eating and all of a sudden she's eating a piece of pie, which Tammy made. And she just blurts out, who made this pie? It's absolutely delicious. And Tammy said, I did. And Lucy looked right at Tammy, stood up, walked over to the trash can and threw that piece of pie in the trash can and continued to eat from her, her, her plate, the rest of her food. Never said another word to Tammy and either did anybody else in that place. And it took everything in Tammy not just to burst into tears, but she held it together till she got home. And this went on for months. And every day that she would get up, I saw her put on Jesus every day. Till finally one day, it was about a couple months into it, my wife was making a meal for, for, for her and I, and she made a beautiful meal, lasagna, she had salads, bread, dessert, we ate a great meal, but then we had a lot of leftovers and Tammy went into the kitchen and the Lord spoke to her. I want you to give that meal, those leftovers, to Lucy. And Tammy really struggled with that. She said, you know, God, you know, you know what she did with the piece of pie. I can't imagine what she's gonna do with this food. She, she finally submitted, packed up the food, went to work, gave it to Lucy. Lucy never said another word. Walked in, did her job, left that day. But after that great act of kindness... Tammy said it did subside a little bit in the office. Not so rude, not swearing at her as much. Until one day it came to a head. Tammy and Lucy, it was just the two of them. And Lucy looked at Tammy and said very nicely, Tammy, I'd like to ask you a question. Now Tammy was floored because she'd never said anything nice to her. and She didn't know what was coming. She said, okay, Lucy, what would you like to ask? She said, who talked to you? Tammy goes, what, what do you mean? Who told you to give me that food? Somebody, somebody talked to you about me? Tammy said, no, no, no. You're talking about the lasagna? No, no. Lucy, let me tell you, I, 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 I pray for you. Because I pray for you, the Lord just told me to give that food to you. And Lucy said this, well, I believe that's true because there's no way, no way you would ever have known that on that day I got fired in my second job. They fired me. And I only had enough money to either pay my rent or buy food. So I paid my rent. And I had no way of buying food that week until the next week. And because you gave me that food, I was able to, that sustained me until the next paycheck. And then she looked at Tammy and she said, I'm sorry. And Tammy said, why are you sorry? Because when you got here, you were so happy. You were so loving. And it made all of us so angry that we all gathered together, all the teachers and everyone in the organization, and decided that we were going to break you. We decided that we were going to be so rude and so cruel to you that we would break you. And then she said, and I'm sorry, but I want you to know something, Tammy. We didn't break you. You broke us. You broke us. What Tammy did is she didn't look to her rights. She looked to her responsibility and her witness. And she put on Jesus every day. And she walked into a place that hated her. And not only was Tammy transformed, but those folks were transformed. Look right here. May all of us in a world that's going to hell in a handbasket really fast, that we will live totally different than the way this world is going. May we have the courage 
May we have what it takes to stand up and say that we are going to walk in the fullness of his spirit, that we might take people with us on the way out of here. May we live in such a way that we not are only impacted, but we will impact the people that are all around us. But that's why we're here. That's it. Let me say this, my brothers and sisters. Every one of us will stand before him. Put on the good clothes. Hear me. Listen to this. I read to you. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Hear that. Holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Verse 14. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You know the perfect jacket to wear that covers all of these beautiful pieces of clothes is love. And we know what kind of love that is. God's love. God's love is unconditional. No strings attached. It means you love in spite of whether or not you feel like it and whether or not that person deserves it. You love them because that's the love of Christ. When you do that, read what it says to us. What it says in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body, you will be called to peace and be thankful. In other words, when you live like that, you're at peace with God, you're at peace within, and if people will cooperate, you'll be at peace with each other. May that be true for your family, for the family of God here, and for what God has called us to do. I love you. I care for you. If you need prayer, I'll be around. Do not leave if there's stuff you really got to deal with. Father, I pray for these folks, and I ask in the name of Jesus, God, for such a time as this, we're alive. We need to show Christ. We can't do it independent of you. So we surrender ourselves. We ask in the name of Jesus today for such a time as this that you would fill us, that we would, we would live out our assignment until we see you face to face. For we ask these things together in Jesus' name. <laughs>